name is Richard, and I am part of the church family here at CCF. I've been here since we opened the doors again last January. Um, this is my second ever talk at the front of Christchurch Feltham. Very exciting, very exciting. Um, Andy let me speak again. Goodness knows why, but he did. Um, oh, that's, yeah, that's why you weren't here. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> well, that explains it. Um, one of the great things I get to do um, once a month here at Christchurch Feltham is lead our kids' group. Um, and last week I was able to be part of the first nativity practice, which was very exciting. You'll be pleased to know that our kids take the Bible very seriously. They take studying the nativity story very seriously. There was sharp controversy and disagreement about that age-old question, you know, were there donkeys or camels present at the birth of Christ? Um, I thought to myself, well, you know, you could kind of have both, couldn't you? But I thought that might be a bit too radical, so, you know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say anything. Um, a nativity play is one of those traditions, isn't it, that we enact at this time of year, um, and tradition being a custom or practice that we do that carries a level of significance, so something that we repeat you know, on a regular basis, whether it's monthly, daily, or, or yearly, um, that carries some sort of meaning for us. And I wonder if you and the people you love at this time of year have any traditions that you enact. Um, my family, my sister Fiona, my mum and I, we have a tradition on Christmas Christmas Day, you know, after we've eaten all the food, the TV is off, we tend to play a game, and we quite like to play a game called Bananagrams. Um, this is a game you play in the evening. Anyone played Bananagrams before? A couple of people. That's good. I think it's also a, a, a Christmas tradition of mine that I always lose at Bananagrams, um, which is slightly depressing, but, you know, never mind. Um, so families have traditions, don't they? People and the communities that we love have traditions. And as a family of the Church of England and the Anglican Communion, we are celebrating our tradition of Advent at the moment, this time of waiting both for the birth of Jesus and looking to that time when he is going to come again. And as Andy said last week, this is a time of anticipation and expectation. We are anticipating and expecting this event that's already happened, but also the, this event that's going to happen again in the future when Jesus comes back. And we do this because this event, we believe that this event that we celebrate on December the 25th, it's so important, it's so pivotal, that we need, we need to spend time in advance to prepare and to ready ourselves for it. And the way that we do this as a church, as a church family, is by reflecting on various characters and themes that embody that anticipation and expectation. Last week, we would traditionally have looked at the patriarchs, at Abraham's story, and this week we are looking at the prophets, those people in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who pointed to the coming of Jesus those people who pointed to the coming of Jesus before his arrival, and of course, in and around this, we are exploring what it is to have the good news of great joy in and through our Christmas services. And just to recap a little bit um, of what Andy said last week, um, Andy was defining joy for us. What does it mean? What does joy mean? And we were talking about joy as being the sort of defiant emotion. It's something that perseveres, um, that stays. It's not like happiness, which is fleeting. It is something that is present and endures. And as Christians, we believe that hope is based on the confidence of the Scripture. We have confidence in what we read that Christ has paid for our sins on the cross, that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we are adopted children of God, and that we're looking forward to this time when Jesus will come back and restore creation to how it should be. And our joy comes from that. So we're looking to see this joy in our worlds and in our town of Felton. And I don't believe we can share this joy without experiencing it and living it for ourselves. Um, I'm a fan of a quote by a pastor called Mark Sayers, and he has a saying that revival 
begins with personal renewal. So if we want to see Felton full of good news of great joy, we ourselves need to ask God to fill us, to renew us with this type of joy so that we can share it with our town. You know, I should just say I'm just part of this church family. I'm not on the leadership team here. I'm not a pastor, so you can feel free to take this or leave this. But as I've been thinking and praying about this talk, I really think that word renewal is very important for us at the moment. You know, Advent is actually the start of the Church of England's liturgical year, kind of liturgy meaning like public worship. So there's a sense as our society is kind of winding down to rest over Christmas and the new year, we as a church are kind of ramping up. And if you think about all of those uh, Christmas activities that Sam just outlined, it's kind of true, isn't it? We are gearing up. We are getting busier. Um, We're also so close now to 2020. Many of us will be thinking about the hopes, the dreams, and the challenges that the next year is going to bring. And of course, very excitingly, we are coming into year two of Christchurch Felton. So I feel like this is perhaps a time when God is calling us to renew our relationship with him and indeed our joy. So if I'm right, the questions I have for us today are how do we get it? How do we get this joy? Or how do we kind of get it again? You know, maybe we've had it and it's kind of disappeared, it's diluted. How can we receive this again? And how do we then communicate this joy to other people? And may I suggest that we find the answer by looking at this group of ragtag characters in the Bible called the prophets and looking for their prophetic prophetic perspective, I knew I was going to trip up over that phrase, prophetic perspective and actions. So who are the prophets? The prophets are a line of characters in the Bible. They span about 17 books of the Old Testament, and they simply are tasked with presenting the truth that God gives them to the people at the time and to figures in authority. It's not just about predicting a future events. I think we think of prophecy as kind of like this vague sort of prediction of things that are going to happen in the future, but really It's about presenting the truth of God to people at the time, saying what is on God's heart and reflecting God's passion and speaking God's truth to people um, of their day. Um, And it's to speak God's current thoughts as they are now. And I like to think of Nathan the prophet, for example, confronting King David about his affair. Um, Nathan then speaking with that prophetic insight into David's life. And throughout these 17 books, the prophets bring warning of impending catastrophe, like Jeremiah warning Jerusalem of the imminent Babylonian invasion, but also reassurance and the promise of future blessing. And of course, as we see today, they point to Jesus and to the kingdom of God breaking into the world. Being a prophet was a tough business. People didn't want to hear what you had to say. The prophet Elijah had to run for his life after confronting the rulers of the day. Jeremiah was thrown in a cistern and left there to keep him from speaking the words that God had given him. The prophets were also, if I may say, pretty mental. The prophet Ezekiel was commanded to lie on his side for over a year to bear the sins of the people, and Isaiah, who we'll hear more about in a minute, walked around naked and barefoot for three years as a comment on a political alliance. And please, God, don't ask us to do that here. (laughs) Please, I'm begging you, Lord, none of that. The prophets were passionate, outrageous, and outspoken. They didn't hold back, and they shared, and they championed God's own passion as a father and the desire to call his people back to true faith and relationship with him. And by the grace of God, the prophets were given a unique perspective on God's great plan and his news of great joy. So let's look more closely about how one of these prophecies um, that points to Jesus plays out. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7, which I think is going to come up on the screens. Um, Isaiah was knocking around about 750 years before Jesus. 
He lived through four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And from the scriptures, we can see that he was very active in political and diplomatic events. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves, so he is a pretty important guy. Now, a little warning first. We're looking at a very famous part of the, of the scripture. Um, generally, when we hear this particular passage, when we hear this particular prophecy about Jesus, we are hearing it in the context of a Christmas service. You know, we're hearing it at nighttime with candles. Everyone is in their Christmas finery. It has that special sort of atmosphere. We need to put all of this to one side if we're going to hear what God has to, us, has to say to us today. So please, just for this moment, humor me. Take yourself out of Christmas mode for just a minute. I know that's very hard for some of us. Just for one minute, just take us out of Christmas mode and just listen to this passage. And I'm just starting a bit before that famous prophecy to give us some context. So here we go, Isaiah 7. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Razin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower him. Uh, could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, a ram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So let's ditch the Christmas card imagery. We're in a war zone. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shea-Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Launderer's Field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tobiel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. And I'm just going to skip um, to the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And let's stop there just for a minute and reflect on that last phrase. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds righteous. It sounds biblically accurate, respectful. Ahaz seems to be a good religious boy. But let's dig a little deeper. Let's dig a little bit deeper because there's something else going on here. God is telling King Ahaz to stand, to trust that God will protect him. However, Ahaz has other plans. We read in the book of two kings that Ahaz is after an alliance with Assyria to defeat Aram and Israel. Behind this righteous scriptural talk, he has no plan to trust God, but rather looks to the armies of men. Well, it doesn't fool God, and it doesn't fool Isaiah, so let's read on. Then Isaiah said, Hear you now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So what can this passage teach us about communicating good news of great joy and renewing that joy within us? 
Well, firstly, when we're communicating the good news of great joy, we need the near and the far perspective. We need the near and the far perspective. The prophecy we've just read works on two different levels. At one end, we have the story that we're familiar with, the story of Mary and Joseph, Matthew, the gospel writer, confirming at the start of his gospel that Isaiah's prophecy here does relate to Jesus specifically. Um, So Isaiah is prophesying with that far perspective. He gets to see Jesus' birth far in the future, and likewise, we can get into Felton with the good news of Advent, that this Savior has been born, and also that he is coming back again. We can tell Felton the good news of God's great long-term plan. But at the same time, we have the near perspective. As well as to point to Jesus, Isaiah's prophetic word is there to strengthen Ahaz. It's there to speak truth to Ahaz, to convince him to hold on in the short term against Aram and Israel. The image of a child being born and eating curds and honey implies birth and new life admit devastation. The curds and honey is sort of an image of poverty. So we're talking about a child being born in poverty. There's this hope for new life, which is there to encourage Ahaz and the leaders at the time. So that takes in that near perspective. And then that word Emmanuel could also be seen as a bit of a critique of Ahaz. You know, Emmanuel is a statement of faith. You know, naming your child in a statement of faith is a bit of a contrast to Ahaz's lack of faith. So when we're thinking of prophecy, there is the near and the far perspective to see. And I want to ask us now, how will we see that near and far perspective uh, when we sing carols on Wednesday? How will we see that near and that far perspective when we're sharing our stories on the high street? How will we see that near and far perspective when we open our doors next Sunday and we invite people in for our Christmas services? When we, are, when we have this wonderful opportunity to share the good news of great joy, how will we consider the near and the far perspective? How will we show people that this joy will impact their daily life? Secondly, we need to look out for God in the small things. You know, God's mind doesn't work in the same way as ours does, does it? I'm always struck, um, and has been very struck by this passage, that King Ahaz looks to an army for his salvation. And I think, in some ways, we can forgive him for that, can't we? I would imagine that the physical sign of soldiers and weapons would be reassuring. But we can see that God's perspective is different. Where Ahaz looks to an army, to human might and majesty, God looks to the birth of a child, weak and vulnerable. As we are sharing this good news of great joy, are we attentive to the small things that are happening in our town? To the things that might seem to be of little value and consequence? Or do we prefer to think of only the big events and the spectacle, the might and the majesty? Thirdly, we communicate this good news of great joy as family. This is a family affair, isn't it? I love the fact that in this passage, Isaiah goes to meet King Ahaz with his son, Prophecy, it seems, is that family business, that father and son team. And there's something really nice about that, isn't there? You know, and similarly, we will be sharing Jesus with the people of Felton as a family. People here will sing carols as a family. We will greet people. We will outreach. We will do our communication and our witness as a family. And family, of course, is one of the values of our church. It's something that we aspire to be. I had a lovely reminder of family yesterday. Um, I was walking home. A car pulled up alongside me on the road. The window wound down, and I heard shouted out in a loud voice, Hi, Rich! Um, And it was a lovely little greeting and a reminder of family from the Gordon Smiths. So thank you for that. Really warmed my heart. So we're a family together, aren't we? 
And as we think about communicating this great news of great joy, can I ask, have you thought about who your spiritual sons and daughters in this church might be? Who are the people that you can partner with and team up with as we share this news of great joy? Who are the people that you can look to to mentor and to train? And what spiritual mothers and fathers here can you look to learn from? Fourthly, and this is my final point, um, we need to communicate the good, the good news of great joy. Um, and when we do communicate this, it means that we are challenging culture. I read this passage today, and I honestly don't know if I could do what Isaiah did. I don't know if I could walk up to a king who could order my death and say what Isaiah said. You know, the prophets are renowned for saying the things that people just don't want to hear. And the question for us is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to cause a stir? Are we willing to live in a way that is going to challenge the culture and other people and point to Jesus? You know, communicating uh, this, as I said, does mean sharing it with people who don't want to hear. Like Isaiah and the prophets, we may have to risk being unpopular. We may have to risk saying and living in the ways of Jesus that will challenge people. And can I ask you a question? How do you feel about that at the moment? Do you feel like there are things in the, say, the things that you say and the way that you live are challenging to other people and are pointing to Jesus? Now, I have to, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because I have to look at my own life and I have to say that I'm not so sure. You know, one of the hard things about writing a talk and preaching a talk at the front of church is you start measuring yourself against the words that you're saying, the words, the words that you're writing. So I wrote that down and I felt very, very challenged by that. Am I really living in a way that is countercultural? Am I really living in a way that embodies those gospel and prophetic values? Am I really living in a way that has that joy that we are sharing? I'm not so sure. And it is especially difficult, isn't it, at the moment to challenge culture, to live in that way at this time of year. There is so much pressure, isn't there? There's pressure to eat, pressure to spend, pressure for excess, pressure at work, pressure to maintain relationships, pressure, unfortunately, even from Christian culture, to look and to be a certain way. But to be carriers of the good news, we need to look back to the Bible. The prophet stood up and fearlessly provided a contrast with the dominant culture and the worldview at the time. What does that look like for us here in Felton? What does that look like in a wider Christian culture? The prophets were there to reform the religious institutions. What does it look like for Christchurch to do that, to live in that countercultural way? I think for us to find that, we need to go back to the Bible and use that, reorientate our lives around it to fight and to live against the current culture. You know, even today, like as we were, you know, and it's, it's encouraging, isn't it? It's so encouraging that we're doing that as a church already. So encouraging that we get to write those Christmas cards today and we get to, to be there for those women. You know, Andy was talking about loneliness last week and that makes me so angry. Those figures of loneliness, people who are lonely over Christmas, lonely in, in life, this sort of loner culture that I've, I've heard about on, on podcasts. It's awful. How do we stand against that? How do we as a church stand and fight against that? The prophets were angry at the state of their society, and they were passionate in wanting to restore the people to relationship with God and with faith. Well, that's all I wanted to say. So I guess to kind of tie up, we need to make some sort of response. I know that I need to make some sort of response and it's been that word of renewal that has been really key for me as I've been preparing this talk. I really sense that God wants to renew me and that he wants to renew all of us with this sense of great joy. 
And I wonder if some of us may be feeling a little bit like King Ahaz. We might be saying the right words, the right Christian phrases, but underneath maybe we're just not close to God. Maybe we're not feeling it. And I'm not saying that as a, you know, in some judgmental way, I certainly feel like that. I think there's something about this time of year, isn't there? I, I always feel kind of exhausted and a bit run down, um, tired, and I need a refresher. I need God to restore that joy in me. I need God to restore that joy in me if I'm to go and I'm to share this news of great joy to the people of this town. So I wonder if there are other people who are like me who also would like God to do that for them. And you know, and joy is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? We read in the Bible that joy is this fruit. This is something that God can give us. This is something that God can stir up in us. And that's what I want for me. That's what I want for you.